For days now, a line of more than 100 trucks filled with food and fuel and medical supplies and water. That line of trucks has been waiting at the Rafah crossing on the Egyptian side of the Gaza border. Because of Israel's blockade, these trucks have been unable to cross into Gaza, where more than two million people have been without many of those basic necessities for 11 days. Until now. After arriving in Israel today, President Biden announced that the U.S. had convinced Israel to let humanitarian aid into Gaza via Egypt. Now, the deal is strict and it is fragile. All of the aid must be inspected before entering Gaza, and it must go to civilians. If Hamas steals or diverts any of that aid, the deal will end. After repairs to the border crossing are completed, this aid should start moving on Friday at the earliest. And it is needless to say, but it has been a very long and very difficult week already. Today, President Biden announced his fifth speech, fifth about this war, set for 8 p.m. Eastern in the U.S. tomorrow, which is coming on the heels of his diplomatic mission to Israel. As the only American president to visit Israel in wartime, Biden's visit today was a powerful show of support for a country that is still reeling from Hamas's brutal and deadly terrorist attack. But while President Biden reiterated American support for Israel's self-defense and he expressed his empathy for a grieving country enraged by loss, Biden also offered a warning. I caution this while you feel that rage. Don't be consumed by it. After 9-11, we were enraged in the United States. While we sought justice and got justice, we also made mistakes. There's always cost. But it requires being deliberate. It requires asking very hard questions. It requires clarity about the objectives and an honest assessment about whether the path you're on will achieve those objectives. The vast majority of Palestinians are not Hamas. Hamas does not represent the Palestinian people. Biden's cautionary notes were sounded against a backdrop of anger spreading across the Middle East and sparking fears that the Israel-Hamas conflict could engulf the region. Rage is erupting across the Arab world. Thousands of protesters converged on the U.S. Embassy in Beirut. We're here to, to let the Arab people wake up. In Turkey, demonstrators rushed the Israeli consulate in Istanbul. They're all reacting to what Palestinians call a massacre, that explosion at the Al-Ahli Hospital in Gaza City. I heard an almighty screech followed by a large explosion. Part of the ceiling of the operating room fell. Bodies can be seen laying on the ground. Children among the victims. An explosion which the Palestinian Health Ministry says killed 471 people yesterday. That explosion shook the globe. While Hamas still claims the blast was an Israeli airstrike, President Biden today said U.S. military data indicates the strike did not come from Israel. A spokesperson for the White House National Security Council told NBC News the U.S. government assesses that Israel was not responsible for the explosion that killed hundreds of civilians yesterday at the Al-Ahi Hospital in the Gaza Strip. Our assessment is based on available reporting, including intelligence, missile activity, and open-source video and images of the incident. But with more than 1,400 reported dead in Israel and more than 3,400 reported dead in Gaza, tensions remain on a knife's edge 
And it is not clear that Arab nations will accept the assessment of Israel and the United States. Last night into today, there were massive protests across the Middle East and North Africa, in Egypt and Yemen and Tunisia and Iraq. In Iran, there were chants of death to France, England, America and the Zionists. In the West Bank, two teenage Palestinian protesters were killed by Israeli defense forces, the IDF. Thousands of protesters clashed with security forces in Turkey, prompting Israel's National Security Council to urge Israeli citizens there to leave as soon as possible. Police used water cannons to disperse protesters who tried to enter the Israeli consulate in Istanbul. Thousands gathered outside the U.S. and Israeli embassies in Amman, Jordan yesterday, and scores attempted to storm the Israeli embassy there as well. In Lebanon, the U.S. State Department issued its highest level of travel advisory, a level four do not travel warning. Part of that warning was about the massive demonstrations that erupted yesterday and the potential for violence from enraged protesters. But the top line warning in that travel advisory was about the increased exchanges of fire between Israel and the terrorist group Hezbollah on the Lebanon-Israel border and the potential for this war to open up a whole new front. Joining me now from Beirut, Lebanon, is NBC News foreign correspondent Matt Bradley. Matt, thank you for joining me tonight. I know that you saw the protests at the U.S. Embassy in Beirut today over that deadly explosion at the hospital. Can you tell me more about what that scene was like? Yeah, well, we were at the protests uh, right outside of that embassy. We were there just at the end, and that's when we saw, well, we could still smell the tear gas, and we could see the police and the military. They were putting the barricades back up that had been taken down by the protesters, and there clearly had been quite a lot of damage that had been done. You know, the protesters, um, you know, they actually set fire to one of the commercial buildings that was next to the road leading up to the embassy. But the protesters never really made it close to the embassy. There's so many... There were so many barricades that were between the protesters and the embassy. They never got close to the actual structure. But we were there earlier at a Hezbollah protest uh, in a neighborhood of Beirut called Dahia. This is a Hezbollah stronghold. And there we were talking to people. We were hearing the speakers. And there you could really get the sense that for the folks who were there, that, you know, there was no daylight between the United States and Israel. They were speaking about the United States and Israel in the same condemning terms. They were speaking about uh, Joe Biden and Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, in the same terms. So for them, it was exactly the same. The United States has always been and was in just last night complicit in what they consider to be the same crimes that Israel has been committing against the Palestinian people and was complicit again in what they said was that bombing of the hospital last night. You know, they did not buy Israel's line that this was Palestinian uh, jihadist groups who launched an errant missile and that that happened to land on that hospital. That was what we heard from the Israelis. And then again this morning uh, from the United States government, they thought that that was a lie. They said that this was absolutely the Israelis who launched that weapon. And they said that this has long been part of their complaint against the Israelis. They use the word genocide and a massacre. I spoke with one protester who was there at that Hezbollah rally. Here's what she told me. 
it's really that the Israelis have left us as Arab people no other cho chance or no other choice but to resist. And resistance means that you have to resist with at, at whatever means you've got, including armed, armed, uh, uh, armed resistance. So as you can see, for them, this is a resistance that doesn't just include the Palestinians. This isn't just about defending the Palestinian cause. For the folks who I was speaking to today and for the folks who have been brought out throughout the entire Arab world for this day of rage, and this is the second time we've seen a day of rage in the past week, this isn't just about defending the Palestinian cause. This is about an Arab cause that spans the entire region. Alex? Matt Bradley doing some essential reporting on the ground. Thank you, Matt, for that. And please stay safe. Joining me now here in New York are Eamon Mohideen, host of Eamon on MSNBC, who has, of course, reported extensively on this region, and Michelle Goldberg, opinion columnist for The New York Times. Thank you guys both for being here. Eamon, before we began this hour of television, you and I were talking about the meaning of these protests in the Arab street. And Look, a lot of these are countries that know how to crack down on protests yeah. if they want to. And I wonder whether you think this is a signal that these these leaders want Americans and Israelis to see the sort of restive, beyond restive, the anger in Arab countries, or whether there's a legitimate concern that they're losing control of the population. So there's, two, there's the short term and the long term. In the short term, a lot of these Arab regimes that are, as you mentioned, undemocratic and are authoritarian and crack down on protests about anything know that this singular issue is probably the one issue where these governments have to give a lot of leeway uh, to protest. Um, you know, we've been living a little bit under um, a fallacy in the West because we hear about the Abraham Accords. We think that there's a genuine peace treaty between Egypt and Israel because they haven't been at war for 40 years. But the truth is, it's not the kind of peace that exists on the street between countries like you would think France and Germany after World War II. That's not what is on uh, the ground. And so as a result of that, over the years, the Palestinian issue, while it has been pushed aside on uh, the tables of Arab leaders, they talk about it, but they don't really do much about it. It. The truth is, it has been always a central unifying issue across the Arab world. So yeah. when they see the images of what plays out in the occupied West Bank, the settlements, and now the war in Gaza, the several wars, it mobilizes the street in a way that some of their own domestic issues are unable to mm. mobilize these people. And as a result, it puts a lot of pressure on these fragile governments because they're not going to crack down. They may ultimately, but they're not going to do it in the short term. And in the long term, it just reinforces the image that that, uh, the belief that a lot of the Arab street has that these regimes are either co-opted by the West or working on behalf of Western interests in the region. They genuinely do not care about the Arab street or Arab identity or specifically the Palestinian issue beyond just lip service. I mean, and in that way, the timing of President Biden's trip, that it coincided with the strike on the hospital even though American and Israeli intelligence say Israel had nothing to do with this, the timing could not have been worse in some ways for President Biden because his name is now being invoked on the Arab street in these protests. It could not have been worse. And I do not recall the last time uh, in my life that an American leader was rebuffed by very pro-American regimes, including uh, the King of Jordan, uh, the Palestinian Authority president, as well as the president of Egypt. Give, yes, the president, of the Palestinian Authority president, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, did not meet with President Trump and certainly rejected what Trump did. That had to do with the embassy moving. But to see an American president arrive into the region, try to bring some of Please. the major players around a table, um, 
and be rebuffed or rejected, I think is not a good look for America in the region. And basically the message that it's sending is that um, we know what side you are on. We are not going to accept, as we heard today from the president of Egypt or the king of Jordan, what you want us to do. We will not just simply allow you to impose what your outcome of this situation is going to be on us, specifically when it comes to the issue of refugees. The Egyptian president was very clear, basically saying that if uh, if you want refugees to be dealt with humanely, Israel should take them into the Negev desert. The king of Jordan forcefully in English saying it is a red line. Jordan will not take in Palestinian refugees. Egypt will not take in Palestinian refugees. It's not a humanitarian issue. It's a principled issue that they are taking that the situation that is playing out in Gaza cannot be dumped onto Arab countries and absolve Israel of the humanitarian crisis that is unfolding there. Uh, Michelle, when you talk about Biden's sort of calibration of how to manage this moment, right? On one hand, he's there to show empathy, to express sympathetic rage, if you will, at the brutal terror attack, but at the same time issue a word of warning. And I think you so beautifully hit on the sort of contradiction inherent in this moment in your piece in The New York Times. I'll read an excerpt from it. I can empathize with liberal Jews, both in Israel and throughout the diaspora, who feel too overwhelmed at this moment of great fear and vulnerability to protest the escalating suffering inflicted on Palestinians. It is not fair that events are moving too quickly to give people time to grieve the victimization of their own community before being asked to try to prevent the victimization of others. Nevertheless, as atrocities are piled on atrocities, I hope Jews will attend to what is being threatened in our name. And all Americans should pay attention, given how much our country underwrites Israel's military. Well, and I do think, I mean, just to go back to this point about empathy, I understand why people throughout the world, and particularly the Arab world, see Biden there literally embracing Bibi and think that these are two governments that are completely hand in hand. At the same time, just kind of knowing Israelis and knowing how they bristle under criticism and also use the often unfair criticism that they get, not all of it, but for example, we see with this hospital bombing, you know, that there was an, you know, kind of widespread condemnation before it became increasingly clear that the story about kind of an Israeli airstrike looked more and more unlikely. You often will hear when you talk to Israelis, we're going to be criticized no matter what. So and that can too easily be twisted into so it doesn't matter what we Mm. do. And I really think that the only way that Biden can kind of quietly get Israel to take even the smallest step back, to pause the beginning of a ground invasion, to try and get some humanitarian aid let through, is to kind of show very little public daylight between Mm -hmm. them, and then to also phrase his warning to them, not, you don't want to make the same mistake you've made before, for example, in Lebanon, but you don't want to make the same mistake that we've made before in in Iraq and Afghanistan, to, to kind of phrase it in that sort of humble way. So I think that that is the right message if you are trying to get through to Israelis, but I also understand why that doesn't translate in so much of the world. Well, right. I mean, and and also invoking the specter of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan may be a useful sort of rhetorical tool to convince Israelis, look, we mean the best here. But what it does when you talk about the Arab world to invoke the specter of that is deeply problematic. Uh, And to to stay on the 9-11 analogy, if you kind of play it out over the span of the outcome, the United States wanted to go after Osama bin Laden. They ended up invading Afghanistan, toppling the Taliban, 20 years of war. They then used a concocted excuse of WMDs, which everyone believed and now knows was pushed upon the public as a lie to invade Iraq. And look at how those two countries turned out. In the case of Afghanistan, 
the Taliban are back. In the case of Iraq, is an ethno-nationalist state that is predominantly controlled by um, Iranian-backed Iraqi militias. We got rid of al-Qaeda. What did we get in return? We got ISIS 2.0, and we ended up having years of terrorism across the United States and Europe that still haunts us till this day. So I think, you know, to Michelle's point, which is very important, anyone who's trying to convey to the Israelis, take a beat. Learn from our mistakes. The anger is real. The pain is real. The suffering is real. But the revenge may end up being something that produces an outcome that is much more disastrous. Everybody keeps saying we're not going to—in Israel, everybody says we are not going to return to the status quo. A very important point. But the status quo means— does that include freedom for the Palestinians? Are you going to put Gaza without Hamas under a blockade or are you going to get rid of Hamas but keep the Palestinians blockaded inside the Gaza Strip in an open air prison while the Palestinians in the West Bank? It can't just be a return, not a return to the status quo for Israel. Can you give us a return not to the status quo right. for the Palestinians? And that answer, I don't. I have not heard a single person well, say no. I, you point this out, Michelle. The language coming from the right in America is not doing any service to any sort of accord happening right. in the Middle East. Well, the language for coming from the right, and which kind of then licenses similarly yes. inflammatory kind of expulsionist language that you hear coming out of this Israeli government. I mean, even before these, you know, ferocious, these, these horrific massacres, you had many people in the Israeli government who talked about, you know, kind of the need to who, who already wanted to expel Palestinians from, you know, kind of from the 67 borders of Israel and kind of from all the land of greater Israel. You already had that tendency. These are people who've in many cases devoted their lives, certainly in the case of Netanyahu, to avoiding the creation of a Palestinian state. I mean, that is why Netanyahu in some ways has built up Hamas as an alternative to so that he didn't have so that he could undercut the PLO and he could undercut the kind of secular nationalists. So there is no way that you're going to see Netanyahu oversee, you know, a kind of understanding that the Palestinians, contrary to what Jared Kushner and the rest of them thought that, you know, this idea that the Palestinians could just be kind of ignored and you could make peace without them and, and keep this and keep this going forever. That's not possible, but he is not the man who is going to be able yeah. to transcend this situation. Which is why it is explicitly being asked, how does this war end and what does it actually mean? Um, we could go on all evening. We have to leave it there, my friends. Eamon Mohadeen, it is always good to see you. Michelle, you're staying you. around because we can't let you go yet. <laughs> um, we have much more this evening. Donald Trump is back inside a Manhattan courtroom today. His theatrics did not go over well with the presiding judge. We'll have more on that. But first, Jim Jordan just got the fewest votes for speaker in modern American political history. So why not give it another shot? That's coming right up. Stay with us. Here on MSNBC, we are staying on top of several fast-moving stories. Today's news requires more facts. A new report finds the climate crisis is getting much worse. More context. We are seeing record numbers of people crossing into the United States just in the southern border. And more ground covered. The mission will continue to carry out regime change in the Gaza Strip. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. 
Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. The Honorable Jim Jordan of the state of Ohio has received 199. The Honorable Hakeem Jeffries of the state of New York has received 212. No person having received a majority of the whole number of votes cast by surname, a speaker has not been elected. Failing to elect a speaker is becoming something of a ritual in the House of Representatives. Today, Republicans made their second attempt at electing Ohio Congressman Trump ally Jim Jordan to the speakership. And in the end, Congressman Jordan received one fewer vote for speaker than he did yesterday, earning him the rare distinction of having received the fewest votes of any official speaker nominee in modern American history, which is really something. Perhaps as a consequence of this, some Republicans and Democrats are now openly considering the idea of giving more power to the House's understudy speaker, a man named Patrick McHenry. A third speaker vote could take place as soon as tomorrow at noon, and Republican opponents of Mr. Jordan say they expect he will lose even more support in the next vote, which may actually be part of their plan. CNN is reporting that Jordan opponents have been purposefully staggering their no votes over multiple ballots in order to show growing opposition to Jim Jordan and also apparently to prolong the pain of all of this as much as possible. Joining me now is Washington Democrat Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. She is also the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Congresswoman Jayapal, thank you for being here. Um, they say that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Are we witnessing insanity unfold on the floor of the House of Representatives? Alex, we totally are. But I just want to say it's not just the last two days. It's really this entire year. When you think about this, we are on the set. We just completed the 17th vote for speaker in nine months. And so I think we have to just recognize that the Republican Party is having a civil war of their own. They are unable to govern. And any time that we have gotten something done, I think you and I talked about this the last time I was on, it's because Democrats stepped up and gave the votes to get those things done so we wouldn't default on our debt, so that we wouldn't shut down the government. And I think what we have to get to is a place where Republicans, some group of Republicans, recognize that a bipartisan path forward where we decide together what are the key issues that must get done for the American people that have a bipartisan path forward, and we get those things done. Because this Republican Party is in ruin. They cannot govern. And it is, again, on Democrats to make sure that we are able to move forward on these essential issues for the American people. It, it, it sounds from the reporting like there are some uh, back channel discussions between Democrats and Republicans about empowering the speaker pro tem, who we call the understudy speaker, uh, Patrick McHenry, to take a longer term position. Is that palatable to House progressives or is this just a sort of moderates project only? Well, I think that um, nobody has been officially 
you know, there's nobody to negotiate with, right? So there's no official negotiations. That is going to be left to our leader, Leader Hakeem Jeffries, um, to negotiate that. What we have said and what he has said in his op-ed is that bipartisan means bipartisan. It means that Democrats have to be able to have uh, a voice in what comes to the floor, in making sure that bad bills don't come forward, in making sure that we are just putting forward the things that uh, we know uh, you know, are necessary to keep the government open, for example. Um, so I think that there's no details here because we don't have anybody to negotiate with. If Republicans get to the place at the bottom of the barrel, and they're almost there, Alex, but apparently not yet, but if they get to that place at the bottom of the barrel, we are ready as Democrats to listen. But it's got to be something that allows us to hold them accountable. And it's got to be something that truly is bipartisan, which means taking into account the Democrats' wishes and the fact that we uh, essentially are the governing force in in the House. So there will be a price extracted if the next speaker has Democratic votes behind him or her. I do wonder, as you watch this chaos unfold, the fact that there's another vote scheduled tomorrow, what is the mood inside the Democratic caucus? I mean, this is still it may be a House run by Republicans and run is a loose term in this case, uh, but it is also your house. And I wonder how you all are processing this and, and thinking about the road ahead. It's been really depressing. I have to tell you, this is my seventh year, so I've only been there three terms. This is only my fourth term. I have never seen anything like this. The reality is that the fundamental task of governing, the first task of governing, is you pick a speaker. And we went through this debacle at the beginning of the year after 15 rounds of voting. At least Kevin McCarthy was going up in his vote count. Now, Jim Jordan is going down. If he insists on another vote count tomorrow, to me, it's just humiliation, but it's also a waste of the American people's time. We have serious issues in front of us, and we have American families that are hurting. We have international crises that we have to deal with. And the fact that Republicans are continuing to hold out and that so-called moderate Republicans, this is a beef with me, as you know, we call them moderate, but they need to stand up. They need to come over to the Democratic side and say, look, we are going to put people over politics. That's what Democrats do every day. And instead, they are sort of digging in. And so we're ready. We're waiting. We want to get back to work. But let's be clear. Republicans have the majority. Even though Democrats are governing in all the situations where we've gotten things done, they need to come to us and we are ready and willing. But it's got to be an actual bipartisan path forward. In other words, the call will not go to voicemail. You guys will pick it up. They just need to dial the number in earnest. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, thank you for your time tonight. Good luck this week. We'll be watching. Thank you, Alex. Coming up. What happens when you try to get elected Speaker of the House by issuing death threats against members of your own party? We're going to have the latest on novel House Republican strategies to figure out who their next leader will be. And later this hour, Jack Smith's latest move suggests that he may be scaling back part of his investigation into Donald Trump. Stay with us. everyone, it's Katie Fang. 
Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Okay, I want to read you a text exchange purportedly between the wife of Republican Congressman Don Bacon of Nebraska and an anonymous ally of House Speaker, House Speaker wannabe, Jim Jordan. The anonymous texter writes, why is your husband causing chaos by not supporting Jim Jordan? Bacon's wife replies, who is this? The texter writes, your husband will not hold any political office ever again. Okay, now. That threat did not work on Congressman Don Bacon. Today, he voted against Jim Jordan for speaker for a second time. And here's what the congressman had to say after that vote. They are messing with the wrong guy. I'm not going to be cowed by this stuff. Several other Republican Congress members who voted against Jordan also spoke today about threats and intimidation that their campaigns received. So the death threats are maybe an actual strategy here. Tonight, Republican Congressperson Marionette Miller-Meek says she received credible death threats and a barrage of threatening calls since she switched her vote in order to oppose Jordan in round two of voting today. And she added, one thing I cannot stomach or support is a bully. We're going to unpack that right now with Michelle Goldberg, opinion columnist for The New York Times. Michelle, first of all, Republicans speaking out against bullies is like a slightly cold comfort given who the titular, the the sort of nominal head of the party is. Right. Although I guess it's impressive in that, you know, the moderate kind of quote unquote moderate wing, what passes for moderate Republicans, you know, have been so incredibly spineless that I think most people expected them to fold. You know, they thought that they would fold on the first vote. Now it seems like increasingly like the attempts to threaten them into compliance. Right. And the thing is, death threats in the past have been very effective in getting Republicans to do the will of the Trumpist base. Right. I mean, we saw that in, for example, McKay Coppins talking to Mitt Romney and Mitt Romney saying that his colleagues were saying that they wanted to vote to impeach, but they couldn't afford the, I can't remember, millions of dollars a year in security, personal security. And they were worried about people going after them. And so that has been the sort of MO of the far right Republican Party, not to make these threats themselves, but when they say that they're going to unleash the base, they know very well what that entails. Release the Kraken, in the words of Sidney Powell. I do think, you know, there is also a difference between the death threats issued from Trump and his followers and those issued by Jim Jordan, a man whose support is only declining here. I mean, the question is, and I, I ask you this as someone who, I know you don't know the answer, but do you think, how do you think this Jordan saga ends? I shouldn't say Jordan saga, the speaker saga ends. I have, I mean, I don't know. My guess, I 
I think that it will probably end with someone like Patrick McHenry getting um, an extension. Yes, because it just doesn't seem like there is any other way out short of, you know, the kind of Matt Gates caucus. If the Matt Gates caucus couldn't couldn't bring themselves to vote for Steve Scalise, you know, Mr. Like kindler, gentler David Duke. I don't think that they're going to find themselves able to get in line to somebody who's even more moderate than that. Um, it's very hard for me to imagine that some Democrats will, I mean, some Republicans will peel away and make a deal with Democrats. Um, but, you know, I think so where po- our politics now are in a place where all outcomes are very hard to imagine, but something has to happen. Well, and it's clear that they can't, they can't get it done on their own. The only question is what kind of price Democrats are going to extract from them because they plan on it, as you heard Pramila Jayapal saying earlier. Michelle Goldberg, thank you for doing double duty tonight, my friend. (laughs) Coming up, Donald Trump was admonished by a judge today for talking too loudly in the courtroom, but it is the former president's words outside the court that could land him in hot water. The latest from the Trump trials with Andrew Weissman. That is next. Donald Trump was back inside a New York courtroom today where the judge in his civil fraud case admonished the former president for speaking too loudly to his lawyers while a witness testified against him. But it is Trump's talking outside the courtroom that could run afoul of gag orders placed on him in both this New York civil case and in the federal criminal case regarding his attempts to steal the 2020 election. Now, Trump is now appealing that federal gag order as new reporting from The Washington Post hints that special counsel Jack Smith may be scaling down that investigation. Smith's team has reportedly withdrawn a subpoena seeking documents from Trump's Save America PAC, which raised more than $100 million by pushing false claims that the election was stolen. Joining me now to help decipher all of this is Andrew Weissman, former FBI general counsel and, of course, co-host of the indispensable MSNBC podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump. Don't roll your eyes. I really mean it. It is indispensable. (laughs) Or maybe you weren't rolling them. Thank you. Andrew, how do you read the the sort of indicators here? Why why is it retraction? uh, Rescind the subpoena on something that seemed like a very um, potentially fruitful line of inquiry. So I... I I don't know. I'm going to give you my educated sure. guess. So first, I just don't think it's a lack of time. I just, you know, Jack Smith is a hard charging prosecutor. I don't see him in a case of this high profile and with something that appears to be worthwhile to yeah. pursue. Doesn't mean you'll get to the end of it. Does doesn't seem like the kind of thing that he would be like. I'm going to withdraw it because I'm going home. Uh, I you know, I'm trying to think of like why you would be potentially withdrawing a subpoena like this. And um, this is a pack that was paying for legal fees. Mm-hmm. And I could see that there could have been litigation over this in the grand jury context, which we would not know about because it's under seal, dealing with whether it was going to either interfere with someone's Sixth Amendment right or reveal um, attorney-client privilege information wow. so that there was some kind of structure worked out with the court as to how they could get this information without revealing privileged information. That that would be my 
educated guess. So woe be to those who think that this line of in- investigation may be closed entirely. It just doesn't, that does, it could it be. It doesn't seem doesn't like seem Jack. right. Yeah, exactly. What about the, the, the unnamed co-conspirators? The, I mean, we have our thoughts about who they are in this yeah. federal case. I but- think they're pretty well established in the federal case. There's one that people aren't quite sure. I, I, there, I do think that Jack Smith's main eye on the prize is keeping the March 4th trial date and doing nothing to interfere with that. I would not be surprised if after that you see the other federal charges. So the priority is get Donald Trump into a courtroom on this. Yes. Uh, the gag order that Judge Chutkin in this case has has set on, or, or as we say, the bail, ter- the, what, the bail what, restrictions, the bail yes. restrictions, yes. more to the point, to be exact. Um, Trump is walking right up to the line in terms yep. of what he's saying about yep. the courts and the case. He's not naming names, but it almost seems like a foregone conclusion that he is going to violate this at time at, at some time. Judge Chutkin has said this trial date is not moving. Right. Right. That's maybe the biggest yes. stick she has to wield against Trump is like moving it out. Well, she has a bigger one. Um, well, and jail time. Yeah, there's you know, I think it's going to depend on uh, obviously he has to violate um, and it's going to depend on how he violates. Um, if he were to name and threaten a witness or a family member, if he were to say the kinds of things he said with respect to Mark Milley, you can imagine the district judge coming down very hard. And when I mean very hard, that could that I don't mean fines. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you could imagine a judge being taking that so seriously. Mm. Um, but if it's something like um, I think yesterday or maybe today, he used the term thug. Yes. Um, now, he was told not Biden to, and his thugs. Exactly. Now, he was told not to use that with respect to the prosecutors and the prosecution team. So, as you said, this goes right to the line. Uh, and you can imagine if he continues that, him, his being admonished or the lawyers being told, make sure your client cuts that out. Or you can imagine fines. But I think the violation, the, the nature of the violation, I think, is going to dictate what happens to him. So, you know, if he does the what he's been doing with, with respect to Mark Milley again, which it, so far he has not. Um, and so I think, you know, I think he's going to be sort of playing with fire. Yeah. Well, is as is his want. The you pointed this out on the podcast this week, the che- Cheeseboro Sidney Powell trial. Jury selection starts on Friday. The trial officially starts next Monday. Right. This Friday. This is, right. I mean, I think people haven't clocked this. This is right. going to be the state of Georgia laying out its evidence in a really important case, especially as it dovetails with the federal case that's been built. Absolutely. I feel like this is, like, there's so much going on because there's the New York case. There was the deposition that Pete Strzok and Lisa Page took. I mean, there's, there's so much litigation over uh, Donald Trump. But the criminal case, the January 6th criminal case, the jury selection is starting Friday um, and in earnest on Monday. And we know that the openings will happen at the latest on November 3rd. Um, and so, as you said, during the trial, we're it is true, Donald Trump is not one of the defendants sitting there, but he might as well be in terms of the nature of the proof that's going to be coming out. So we're going to learn a lot more about the nature of the scheme that was charged. Uh, uh, and it is a big, sprawling indictment. So yes. there's going to be a lot to talk about. I mean, there always is, especially with you, my friend. And Weissman. So good to see you, as nice always. To see you. Coming up after the break, what will happen to the at least 199 hostages taken by terrorists on October 7th? Former Mideast envoy Dennis Ross joins me to discuss the least worst options that are on the table. Stay with us.
To those who are living in limbo, waiting desperately to learn the fate of a loved one, especially to families of the hostages, you're not alone. We're working with partners throughout the region, pursuing every avenue to bring home those who are being held captive by Hamas. That was President Biden in Israel today addressing the families and loved ones of those taken hostage in the brutal terror attack of October 7th. Their rescue remains elusive. And that is because, as Dennis Ross, former U.S. envoy to the Middle East, writes in The Atlantic this week, there are almost no good choices. On the one hand, the terrorist leaders no doubt hoped the hostages would be a deterrent against Israel's launching of an all-out war against them. On the other hand, Hamas allies knew that if they could trade their hostages for a number of militants held in Israeli prisons, they would be heroes among Palestinians who see those held in the Israeli jails as part of the struggle against occupation. Indeed, the spectacle of Hamas gaining the release of prisoners in spite of its killing spree of Israelis would allow its leaders to claim that their way worked. Joining me now is the author himself, Ambassador Dennis Ross, counselor at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and a former U.S. envoy to the Middle East. Ambassador Ross, thank you for making the time. Um, I found this to be fascinating reading, and I wonder if you could uh, sort of recount how and how the 2011 hostage negotiation where Netanyahu traded, I think it was a thousand jailed Palestinians for a single solar soldier, Gilad Shalit, how the specter of that exchange figures into potential hostage, hostage negotiations today. You know, it, it has a backdrop that affects both sides. The Hamas leaders felt, given that experience, if we have hostages, the Israelis will surely uh, make trades if they were prepared to give over a thousand, including, by the way, the leader of Hamas in Gaza today, probably one of the masterminds of what was done, Yaya Sinwar, was one of those released. So you can imagine he sees we have this history, we have this experience. The Israelis will be willing to make trades because of that. On the Israeli side, it's precisely because of that that there is now a hesitancy to do anything like that. There's also a very deep reluctance to do anything that looks like Hamas is being rewarded for what they did. So the impulse on the Israeli side to talk to anybody about this is really quite limited. Are the avenues we're pursuing are less to do with Israel and much more to do with countries like Qatar or Turkey or even Egypt that have a relationship with Hamas, especially Qatar, which is uh, a bankroller of Hamas. And obviously it can it has the ability to threaten to withhold money and maybe even to cut relations. So we're clearly trying to work with those who have leverage on Hamas and they have an interest. Qatar and, and Turkey have an interest in trying to say, look, we have a relationship with Hamas, and here's the value of that relationship. But to prove it has value, they have to deliver. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I wonder, you know, in the piece, the negotiations seem so fraught and so complex. You seem to suggest that an extraction uh, or a rescue operation may be the best option. Can you talk a little bit more about that, given the situation on the ground, both in terms of the tunnels, where we presume the hostages are being kept, and the actual deteriorating situation in Gaza more broadly? Look, rescue operations are always the last thing to take place because you need intelligence and it takes time to get it. Uh, then you have to figure out how well the hostages are def are defended in these places. Are the places booby-trapped? Do they put the, the hostages front and center? There's a whole series of challenges that raise the question of, are you sure you can save them more than getting them killed? 
But then you're weighing it against the option of is a negotiation or are these other countries going to deliver anything? And it would be easier for the Israelis to say, OK, we don't need to do rescue operations if the channels that we're using right now look like they were paying off. Now, at this point, that isn't happening. But one can envision maybe there's a circumstance under which Hamas will decide under the pressure from Qatar or Turkey or maybe Egypt that they will release the women and children. Uh, and if that's the case, then it, it defers the use of, uh, of the, the rescue operation as an option. So I think we have to see a little bit more. A little bit more time has to go by. But again, you said it at the top, none of the options are good. Uh, and Hamas is not the kind of group uh, that, A, doesn't follow through on threats it makes to execute hostages. It's also not the kind of group that wants to give up something for nothing. Yeah, it is complicated, to say the least. You, you report in your your piece in The Atlantic that the U.S. has already, you've heard reports that the U.S. has already deployed a hostage rescue unit to Israel to assist with possible coordination. We cannot imagine what is happening behind the scenes, but your assessment here is quite illuminating. Ambassador Dennis Ross, thank you so much for your time tonight. My pleasure. That is our show for tonight.